heaven rules, something that we can all look forward to. The end of a movie ought to be satisfying. At least that's what my wife thinks. Drives her nuts when the movie doesn't end just the right way, where the good guy wins, the bad guys lose, the guy ought to kiss the girl, take her off into the sunset, otherwise it's not very satisfying. And the verses beginning in verse 9 through 14 really give us the end of the story. And it's a satisfying ending as heaven rules. In verse 9, Daniel said, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain, its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. There's an article in the Santa Ana Register some time back about Ted Turner. You know who he is, Turner Broadcasting, CNN. The article said, media mogul Ted Turner wanted to see if anybody has a vision of a future world at peace and in harmony with the environment. He says the quest ended in disappointment. Turner told a gathering in Atlanta, Georgia, a gathering of contributors to his cable news network World Report, that he funded a competition to find a book that gave a workable plan for a world at peace. Quote, With 10,000 manuscripts, we did not have one plausible treatise on how we could get to a sustainable, peaceful future. The board chairman of Turner Broadcasting System Incorporated said that without a feasible plan, the prospects of creating peace are dim. Well, Teddy left out one book, didn't he? The book with the answers in it. The book that has a very, very plausible plan for future peace. We read about it all over the place in the book that we call the Bible. There is coming a time when heaven will rule, when the future, the world, will be at peace. But it won't come with the election of a new politician. It will come when the Prince of Peace comes to rule and reign in this earth. It's the only time. That is in view here. But that won't happen until it is preceded by a time of desperate tribulation, as we discussed last week a little bit when we discussed the Antichrist, the man of sin. 
But this morning we want to look at kind of all of these things in view. We're going to see a picture of heaven, the throne of heaven. We see the Antichrist on the earth. And then we see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And actually, there is a chronology to follow. But the main focus is on Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, coming to the Ancient of Days. By the way, the focus of all prophecy in the Bible is Jesus. He's center stage. He's the main character of all of prophecy. In Revelation 19, verse 10, we read, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In the New Testament, if you were to count up all the verses from Matthew to Revelation, you'd have a total of 7,959 verses. 330-some-odd verses speak with the return of Jesus Christ to the earth, the second coming. It's about one out of every 25 to 30 verses of Scripture speak about the coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, next to the subject of faith itself, no subject is more discussed than the return of Christ. For every one mention of the first coming, there are eight Scriptures that speak about His second coming. For every one verse on the atonement, There are two verses that speak of the second coming. Jesus referred to his own return 21 times, and 50 times in the New Testament, you are told to be ready for it. It's something that is very prominent. Now, in chapter 7 of Daniel, this is a vision 2,500 years ago that he sees into the future. It's a prophetic camera that pans throughout the Gentile world history the kingdoms of the Gentiles, from the Babylonian kingdom to the Medo-Persian kingdom to the Grecian kingdom to the Roman kingdom, and finally, at least in earthly standards, to a coalition of ten nations gathered together under this Antichrist, this world dictator that we discussed last week. But the good news is yet to come, and we haven't really talked on it, and that is this Ancient of Days, the End of the Beast, and the coming of the Son of Man. Now, when Daniel saw this vision, in verse 15, he said, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. Poor guy had a bad night. It was confusing to him. But we, from a New Testament perspective, have been able to fill in a lot of the gaps, as we've seen in the book of Revelation, and even Jesus' own words in the Gospels of Matthew and some of the others. But we get this peek into the future. And this morning, I want to look at what we've just read in three phases. There's actually three stages that you could follow chronologically. The first one in verses 9 and 10 is the courtroom of the sovereign God. A throne is seen. A court is seated. The books are open. It's the courtroom of the sovereign God. In verses 11 and 12, we see the consummation of the sinful monarch, this antichrist beast, the man of sin. And then finally, in verses 13 and 14, the coming of the Son of Man. All seen, and we're going to look at it in one package this morning. First of all, the courtroom of the sovereign God. Listen to the language. I watched till thrones, plural, were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. All these thrones, obviously, around his. His garment was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, 
Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were open. This is Daniel's vision. He's seeing way far into the future. Though 2,500 years ago he saw this vision, he's peeking into something that, from our perspective, has not yet happened. But you know, when God speaks prophetically, He often uses the past tense. You'll notice that several times in the Scripture. God speaks about a future event as if it's already happened. That's because the Almighty God doesn't live in the time and space continuum that you and I live in. To Him, it's all now. It's all the eternal present. He doesn't live on a chronological timeline. And so in Isaiah 46, God said, I make known the end from the beginning. Picture it this way. Let's say we're seated at a parade, right in the middle of the parade route. We're sitting there, we're getting a great view. First, the clowns on bicycles come with their little band tooting their horns, doing their funny little tricks. After the clowns on bicycles, the high school sweetheart in her float comes by and she's waving with a little parade wave. And several other events and floats come by. As we're watching, somebody spots us. And they come up to where we're seated and they say, Have the clowns on bicycles come by yet? That's my favorite event. Say, oh yes, they've been by about ten minutes ago. You missed them. But if you go up the street, you'll see what for me has already passed. You're great. So scurry up the street. You can see the clowns on bicycles and the sweetheart queen. Somebody else comes by sometime later and says, I don't know what I missed, but my favorite thing is the mayoral float. I want to see the mayor in that big car and that big float and all those people around him. Have I missed it? Say, well, I don't think you've missed it. It hasn't happened yet. Oh, well, I've got to go quickly. Well, I suggest you go to the beginning. And if you go to the beginning, you'll see what is for me the future. So if you want to see what is past, you have to go ahead. If you want to see what is future, you have to go back to the beginning. Now let's say we got in a blimp or an airplane and we're hovering above the parade route. You could see it all in a moment's glance. All in one, you could see all those things happening. And so God, seeing all things happening from His perspective at once, though for us it's very different, can speak prophetically and speak of something that is yet future as if it's already past. And so we see this future glimpse into heaven. We see a throne. The Ancient of Days is seated upon the throne. This is not the great white throne judgment spoken of at the end of the book of Revelation, which is after the millennium. This is a throne of judgment. Fire issues forth. Books are opened. The court is seated. It's the courtroom of the sovereign God as judgment is about to take place upon the earth. But it's a glimpse into heaven. You know, heaven is a popular subject these days. It's been popular for a long time. Back in the 60s, there were several songs that popularized the concept for a lot of us. Stairway to Heaven was one of them. Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky was another one. Then there was Bob Dylan. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. I shouldn't even do his imitation. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Of course, recently, Eric Clapton 
did a song about his son who fell to his death in New York called Tears in Heaven. Heaven is on the minds of a lot of people, but what is it exactly? What will it be like? Is it like all those Sunday school stories we heard about? Are we going to have our own private cloud? Are we going to have white robes and little halos? Are we going to be playing harps? Well, I hope I'm playing a guitar instead of a harp. Is Peter really at the gate? Like all those dumb jokes say that he is? There's a lot of confusion about heaven. What will it be like, and how do you get there? How do you get to heaven? What keeps people people from going to heaven, or gets a person into heaven? Like a little girl in Sunday school who wrote a little letter to God. She said, Dear God, is it true that my daddy won't get to heaven if he uses bowling words at home? Obviously, her father was saying some things he shouldn't be saying, and that really bothered and worried that little girl. But here we get a glimpse into heaven. Throne, other thrones, this majestic figure, fire coming from his throne, and this innumerable multitude that is around him worshiping and singing. And then in verse 13 and 14, this vision of glory with the Son of Man. Now, in the Bible, heaven is mentioned 592 times. It is given to us three different ways. There's three ways the Bible views heaven. First of all, the terrestrial heavens or the atmosphere around the earth. The Bible says as rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth, Jesus said, look at the birds of the air or of the heavens. Then there is the celestial heavens, the moon, the stars. The Bible speaks about the stars of heaven. The heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, space. You know, the final frontier. That's the celestial heavens. But the Bible uses it a third way, and it's spoken of here, and that is the abode of God, where God hangs out. Paul called it the third heaven. I was caught up into the third heaven, into paradise. And I saw things that are inconceivable, unlawful for a man to even utter. That's why it's funny when I hear of that cosmonaut who went up on that space mission and he was up viewing the stars and the planets from the perspective of the celestial heavens. And he said, I've been up here to the heavens and I never saw God. Well, he didn't go far enough. Of course, one of the NASA people heard that and he said, just step outside your shuttle out of your spacesuit, and you will. You'll see him real quick. But what is in view in verses 9 and 10 and also in verses 13 and 14 is this third heaven, the abode of God. Now, a few things about heaven you ought to know because it's going to be your home in the future. It's a real place. It's not a fig newton of your imagination. It's not some airy concept. As John Lennon used to sing, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Well, there really is a heaven. In fact, it's more real, you could say, than the earth. It's certainly more stable, more eternal. The earth will pass away, Jesus said, along with the heavens now. But there will be a heaven that God will create, His abode, that will never, ever have an ending. The kingdom of heaven. It's a real place. The writer of Hebrews said it's a city that has foundations, unlike this earth whose maker and builder is God. You're going to be there. The question is often asked, what will we look like in heaven? 
a whole lot better. You'll have a celestial body. You'll have a resurrected body. It will resemble the earthly body, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, but it will be celestial, suited for the environment of heaven. Heaven's a real place. Also, heaven is a very big place. Because here in this verse, we read that there's thousands, thousands, which is an Aramaic idiom for speaking of innumerable multitudes, and then 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. It could be that heaven will actually have many great population centers, cities within it, possible. Jesus said, in my Father's house, there are many abiding places, many mansions. It could be translated a number of different ways, but it seems that it's almost incomprehensible in size, the eternal heaven of God. God measures the heavens with a span of his hand, from thumb to forefinger. That's an amazing statement. That's a big God. We know the Milky Way galaxy is 10,000 times 100,000 light years in measurement. That's just one of the billions of galaxies. God measured it with the span of his hand. How big is the universe? Not that big. <laughs> Heaven is huge. When John sees the new Jerusalem, the singular city descending out of heaven, coming to the earth, he was awestruck at its size and its reality. He said it had walls, gates, a river, uh, it had trees, it had people, angels. And then a reed was given to the angel to measure the size of this city. And it was 12,000 furlongs cubed. 12,000, 12,000, which is 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles deep, 1,500 miles high. And this cube coming out of heaven. If you were to measure that at its base, you'd have 2,225,000 square mile base, rising 780,000 stories in the air. Big enough to give a lot of space to more than anyone who has ever lived on planet Earth. Imagine John's excitement. Awe as he saw this new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. It will be free. There will be no closing costs, no realtor's fees, no taxes on your property, no utility bills. In fact, it will have a great lighting system. When we get to Revelation, we'll see that as God just lights it up. Some people also ask, will we recognize each other in heaven? I love the way Spurgeon answered that. He said, do you think in heaven we'll be stupider than we are on earth? You can recognize your friends now, right? You'll recognize each other in heaven. The Bible says, I see through a, gr a glass dimly, but then face to face. I know in part, and I prophesy in part, but then he said, I will known, e know even as I am presently known. A full knowledge will be yours in heaven. Remember in the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples see Jesus transfigured with Moses and Elijah. There was an instant recognition, though Moses and Elijah had been dead over 900 years. There wasn't a little name tag, my name is Elijah, my name is Moses. There was an instant recognition of who these people were. The most exciting part of heaven is in focus here in these two verses, and that is heaven is the dwelling place of God. Does it really matter where heaven is? God is there. That'll be heaven. He'll be on the throne. He's the main character here. And all these thrones are around His. 
And innumerable multitudes are surrounding his throne, giving him worship. And so the courtroom of the sovereign God. Now in verse 11, the camera goes back down to the earth for just a moment, and we touched on this last week. But verses 11 and 12, I call it the consummation of the sinful monarch. The courtroom is seated in heaven, and now something happens. The verdict is passed. Judgment is passed for this beast, this Antichrist, that we spent all week last week in our service talking about. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain, its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, and their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now remember, this dictator will be on the scene for several years, seven years, in various capacities. He will come with a peace plan. It'll work. He'll be an awesome speaker. He'll lure people into a covenant. And then, at the three and a half year mark, he'll break the covenant. He'll then unleash his fury upon those that he made the covenant with. It will look like this guy is unconquerable, invincible. He'll flex his mighty muscles. But he has not yet experienced the full wrath of God, which we will see in the tribulation period. As a little overview for you, the tribulation period, the seven-year period, serves three purposes. You can keep these in mind. Purpose number one, to judge the earth because of its blasphemy, its idolatry, and its rejection of God's plan of peace through Jesus Christ. God will finally judge the world. He's very, very patient. It'll last a long time, his patience, but there comes a time when God says enough is enough. He'll judge this presumptuous world. Secondly, the tribulation will prime and prepare Israel for their Messiah. 144,000 from 12 different tribes will be converted during this period and receive the Messiah, Jesus. Recognize it's Him. The first time He came, they weren't ready for Him. The Bible says He came to His own. His own did not receive Him. They'll receive Him this time. Finally, the tribulation period serves as God judging the kingdom of the monarch, the sinful monarch, the beast. And there's a series of judgments that are poured out on the earth. There's trumpets. There's seals. There are bowl judgments, all written about in the book of Revelation. When the fifth bowl judgment is poured on the earth, it is poured actually upon the kingdom of the beast. Let me read it to you in Revelation 16. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. As God judges the kingdom of this dictator, this dictator will be amassing all of his troops, nations that have yielded their sovereignty to him, this coalition of nations plus some others. They will gather together, believe it or not, to extinguish any flame of the control of God upon the earth. They'll actually come to fight the Lord, the Bible says. They'll gather together at a place called Armageddon, something Napoleon called was the most natural battleground that he had ever seen. Previous battles with Shennacherib, Antiochus Epiphanes, Ramses, and others were fought on that battlefield. The battle will actually be interrupted by Jesus returning to the earth. It won't, as we said last week, be a battle. It'll be a wipeout. 
Jesus won't lose a single one. He'll come in glory to the earth. And listen to how Paul puts his coming. He says concerning this dictator, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Talk about a superhero. You know, kids today are fascinated with these superheroes. Have you noticed that? There's always a new one, too, that the toy companies are coming out with because they know your kids are going to like them. Jesus is the ultimate superhero. He's able to just wipe out everybody that comes against him in the end. It's like one little boy was saying to his buddies in trying to describe how great God was. He said, God is better than Superman, Batman, and the Power Rangers put together. With the brightness of his coming, with the breath of his mouth, he will destroy this beast. And so the scenario, heaven is assembled. Thousands are around his throne. The judgment goes down. The gavel goes down. The verdict is then carried out in the tribulation period upon the earth for the nation of Israel and against the kingdom of the beast. Jesus, the Bible says, will gather up his church and then there will be tribulation period unlike this world has ever seen or ever will. A mother was asking her little boy to take the laundry off the clothesline in the backyard before the thunderstorm was coming. He quickly gathered the shirts, the underwear, the pants, had the last load on his arm, and he stood at the threshold of the back door, and he put his arms up, his one arm up, and he said, Okay, God, let her rip. There'll be coming a day like that when Jesus will gather his elect And then once they're safely gathered, God will say, Okay, Father, let them rip. Let her rip. The judgments will fall upon the earth. But eventually the kingdom of the beast will be destroyed. And then verses 13 and 14 are in view, the coming of the Son of Man. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, to him who was given Uh, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which will not be destroyed. Now this is exactly what Jesus was referring to when he stood before Pilate as a tattered Galilean. And Pilate saw him and said, Are you a king? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my subjects would rise up and fight you. But my kingdom is not of this world. He's referring to this kingdom. When he came the first time, he didn't come with a powerful kingdom like he'll come the second time. This also is what Jesus was referring to his disciples about. When in the Gospels he gave them a parable about a nobleman's son. And the scripture says the disciples thought the kingdom of God would come immediately. But Jesus said, no, the kingdom of heaven is like a nobleman's son who went to a far country. He went away to a far country to receive a kingdom and then to return back. And so Jesus ascended up into heaven. He's been there for a long time. Heaven still rules on earth as far as the sovereignty of God. But one day, Jesus will return with that kingdom and set up shop 
You could look at it this way. He's going to put a sign over the earth that says, under new management. When he completely takes over. Now we notice here the term, one like the Son of Man. And some other Bibles have a different translation, a Son of Man. It's a term that in the Old Testament simply refers to a human being. Ezekiel was called a Son of Man. But Jesus referred to the Son of Man being himself and referred to this scripture in Daniel as applying to himself. It's a messianic term. Eighty-one times in the four Gospels, the term Son of Man is in view. The Son of Man who will come. And it says here, Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. That's a description of Jesus Christ coming back to the earth in glory. Now, let me give you a verse, a singular verse of Scripture that ties all of this together. Jesus got his disciples together and was predicting the future. He told them about the tribulation. He told them about uh, this man of sin coming, that the earth would get really bad and that he would come again. And this is what he said in Luke chapter 21. There will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and on the earth. There will be distress of nations with no way out. The sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts will be failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and with great glory. Now this is when Ted Turner's wish will be fulfilled. The Prince of Peace will come. There will be a time of peace. He will come as that conquering ruler and he will bring in a time of eternal peace upon the earth. You know, for years people have talked about peace apart from God. We have peace treaties, we have peace marches, they join peace movements. We're visualizing now world peace on bumper stickers. We talk about disturbing the peace and one wonders, has there ever been any peace to disturb? The United Nations has that hope of peace as they put the scripture over their doors. Quoting Isaiah, they will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. But the United Nations won't get that job done. No political party will get that job done. Only when the Prince of Peace returns in the clouds of heaven, stopping the Antichrist, hanging up the new management sign, and completely taking over, will it happen. That's the consummation, and that's the coming of the Son of Man. At that time, he will answer the prayer that you pray frequently, I hope. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. We've been praying that for a long time. Lord, come. Set up your kingdom. Lord, come. Do something. How long will we wait? I heard of a church back in the Midwest, located by a freeway, where the big trucks go by. And sometimes the PA has a problem where it phases in and out of the CB radio from these truckers, which can present a problem in the church services. The the truckers don't know it, but the people in church sure do. You can imagine the um, shock of the parishioners when one Sunday morning the pastor is praying, Lord, come and meet every need. And all of a sudden they heard in a crackling voice, Ted for, Ted for, I'll be right there, I'll be right there. They looked up in shock. Wow! Well, one day he will be right there. Though he's patient with the world now, the world's ripening for judgment. 
The church will be raptured. Heaven will be seated. The verdict will be given. The beast will be judged. And Jesus Christ will come again. Now we have a couple moments left, so I want you to turn to the book of Revelation. Remembering what you just read, let's look at a parallel scene. It's the same scene written from John's perspective. New Testament book of Revelation, chapter 4. You will be amazed at how close the parallel is. Verse 1. After these things... It's a very key word. We don't have really time to discuss it now. But after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And this is interesting. The first voice I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he who sat there was like jasper and sardius stone in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white robes. They had crowns on their heads. Look at chapter 5 verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And so I wept much, literally with great convulsions I wept, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Remember the vision in Daniel? The Son of Man comes to the one sitting in the throne. Here we see what he does. He takes the scroll. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the twenty-four elders, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe, tongue, people, nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign upon the earth. And I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. Same scene. A little bit of different perspective. What intrigues us, and I'll be closing on this note, is the scroll with seven seals in the right hand of the Father that Jesus comes to take. If you had a Jewish background, this would remind you of the real estate transactions of the Jewish people in Israel, especially in the Old Testament. If you had land and you wanted to sell it, or you had to forfeit your land, you would write up the deed on a scroll. You'd have two scrolls. One scroll would be kept with seals, put in a clay jar, a safe place. You, as the seller, would keep the other scroll. There were provisions written upon the scroll. 
There was even something called a redemption clause. Later on, if you wanted to buy it back, or if you could fulfill the conditions if the land had been forfeited from you, you lost it. If you could fulfill the conditions for redemption, you could get it back. If you couldn't fulfill it, a relative, a kinsman, fulfilling the requirements could get the land back. There's a story of this happening in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah's in jail. He's been preaching the truth. He's been saying the Babylonians are going to come and wipe out Jerusalem, which we have seen it happen. But God comes and says, I want you to buy some land in Jerusalem. Your cousin, Hanamiel, will be here shortly. Buy the land in Anathoth. It's a part of your family. You have all of the necessary requirements to buy the land. Now, Jeremiah is thinking, why would I want this land? It's worthless. The Babylonians are going to take it captive. But he did it anyway by faith, believing that though Israel was taken captive, they would come back and they would use that land once again. So, they take a scroll and they write on it and they seal the scroll and they place it in the ground in the clay jars. Revelation 5 is the greatest real estate deal in all of history. That scroll is the title deed to planet earth. God created the earth. It was his by creation. God put Adam in charge of it. He mortgaged the earth to Satan at the fall. So that the devil, even when Jesus was tempted, said, Look at the kingdoms of the earth. They are mine, and I can give them to whosoever I will. Jesus didn't dispute it. That's why he came, is to buy his blood, buy back the earth to God, to reclaim it. That's why John becomes unglued. No one is worthy to take. No one can fulfill that clause of redemption. But somebody says, Hey, John, chill out, or relax. Don't fret. Look, the Lion of Judah, a messianic phrase speaking of Jesus Christ, he's going to take it. He's going to do it. What is interesting is this. He says, look, the Lion of Judah. But he looks and sees a lamb, not a lion, and a lamb as though it had been slain. Isn't that interesting? Could it be that in heaven, for all of eternity, your Savior will bear the marks of the crucifixion on his hands and on his feet? You know, when Jesus rose from the dead, he still had them. He said, Thomas, put your hands here. Touch. See that it's me. Touch the wound in my side. He ascended into heaven, glorified, but bearing the marks of his crucifixion. It could be that Jesus, for all of eternity, will be bearing those marks. You say, what a shame. Not for him. It's his glory. To have the reminder of buying you to himself, purchasing you. And it says he purchased... He fulfilled it because he bought it with his own blood. Having been slain, he redeemed us by his own blood. One day, heaven will rule. We get a glimpse of it from time to time in the scripture. It's only a glimpse, however. We've seen a little bit of what heaven's going to be like, but there's a whole lot we don't know. I figure it's a lot like Marco Polo. When Marco Polo was dying on his deathbed, that 13th century explorer was surrounded by some of his counselors who had not traveled with him. They didn't believe that all the things he said about China and the Far East were true. In fact, they said, Marco Polo, take those things back. Just come on, tell us the truth. They, you never really saw what you said about China and the Far East. Withdraw your statements, because they didn't believe him. Marco Polo smiled and said, 
I didn't even tell you half of what I saw. We see a glimmer of what eternity is like, these thrones, the glory of the Son of Man. But what God has in store for us, there's so much yet to be revealed. The kingdom of heaven will rule. Is it ruling right now in your life? Is your life submitted to the King of Kings? Are you out doing your own thing apart from God? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? If so, you've got a lot to look forward to. If not, you've got a lot to not look forward to. The kingdom of heaven will rule someday. We get a glimpse of it. And so, Father, we turn our hearts to you. And we pray, Father, that everyone in earshot of this message, by cassette or live here on the radio or wherever, if their life right now is not surrendered to Jesus Christ, they would make a commitment for you to rule and reign as God and as Lord in their hearts today. Being able to then in the future share as you give this kingdom, bought by the blood of the Lamb, as an inheritance to your saints, as we've read about already. Lord, we thank you that this earth is simply a preparation phase for something that is much better to come. May we be ready for it, Lord. May heaven not just be a whimsical kind of a thing that we don't look forward to, but I pray as Christians we would have heaven in view continuously as we live here on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.